are listening to the Evolution Exchange podcast, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders in the UK. I'm Mike Sullivan, I help connect businesses with tech talent, and today I'm your host. Hello everyone, my name is Michael Sullivan and I'm your host for today. Welcome to the third instalment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. It is 4pm on Wednesday the 23rd of February here at Evolution HQ in my hometown of Birchwood in Warrington. Hopefully they start at the storms Dudley, Eunice, Gladys are behind us and people can stop getting blown over. <laughs> Today I'm joined by a great panel to discuss how to create an engineering excellence culture within a software company. Having caught up with each of you over the last couple of weeks, I'm excited to hear your insights and looking forward to delving deeper into the topic of engineering excellence. Um, before we go into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. I'd like to know who you are, what you do, and also what you're passionate about. And let's start with you, Alex. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, so yeah, I'm Alex. I'm the CTO at Licked, uh, first company to offer commercial music licensing for YouTube. As for me myself, uh, well, I'm a big music fan and a big YouTube fan, so uh, it kind of makes sense that this is where I am. Fantastic, and over to you, Anka. Um, okay, so my name is Ankur. I am a VP of Product and Engineering at Perkbox. Uh, Perkbox, for the people who do not know, is a global rewards and benefits organization headquartered in London. Um, we keep employers, um, you know, we work with employers to keep their employees engaged in 52 plus countries worldwide. Um, I have, um, you know, I started off as an engineer, moved into product, now take care of product engineering, um, have built several multi-million um, dollar products, um, but, you know, way more than that failed products. Um, I, I'm, I'm passionate about writing. I'm, uh, I'm passionate about mentoring uh, senior product and engineering folks to further their career. That's what wakes me up early in the morning. Well, and yourself, Louis? Hey, how you doing? Um, lovely to be here. So uh, my name is Louis Bacon. I am the CTO at Lawbyte. Um, Lawbyte basically is an online platform which has the aim of democratizing the law and we are disrupting the legal industry through technology. Um, the, the, the platform handles the entire legal process from start to finish um, and it kind of streamlines the process for both clients and lawyers. We just launched our new platform at the end of last year which was the culmination of two years worth of work and a lot of man hours and uh, a lot of patience. <laughs> I've been software engineering since I was 15 years old uh, and I've been a CTO since I was 27 so I'm in my 10th year of doing it now which is exciting. Um, I didn't have a clue what I was doing when I first uh, got my got my first gig but um, yeah it was a baptism of fire and here we are I still, still managed to survive. Uh, my passions are technology, um, working with people, uh, my family, I have two beautiful children and a multitude of different sports, basically. Fantastic, Louis. And last but not least, yourself, Roberto. Hi, Michael. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so about me, CTO at UHubs, 
uh, as one uh, of the very few and first development intelligence platform, we aim to uh, deliver a, uh, one of the first no-code, low-code solution for the leaders, for the big tech out there, and even not just tech, it's a lot about um, helping sales leaders hiring, developing, retain, and selling better. Um, about myself, um, so I'm actually an Italian CTO, um, and in 2015, uh, my company was acquired by Justit, and that's why I flew to London. So I had a chance to to join a few beautiful, uh, successful startups. Prior to that, Ux uh, Porter leading the M&A that was uh, roughly five billion. Uh, to this date, what I'm passionate about technology, of course, but it looks like uh, I have uh, three f friends here sharing the same passions and uh, sport. I'm, uh, I just love to work out and that's about me. Brilliant, Roberto, not to mention your beloved Inter Milan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, now we've um, got to know you all a little bit more, let's well, let's go straight into the topic. Um, we're all here to, have an in, to discuss an interest in the topic of how to create an engineering excellence culture within a, within a software company. Um, and I believe Alex will like to start with the first question. So let's kick, kick, kick things off, Alex. Sure, no problem. Okay, so there's going to be loads of different factors for an engineering excellence culture between a small company and a large company. What do you think are the main factors? Bill, and would you not let's start with this one, Anka? Thank you. So I've, I've worked in really, really big companies like um, Travelocity, um, when, it, when it used to be um, an independent company, um, third largest online travel agency in, in US. I've worked with ESPN and then um, I kind of traded and decided to work with really small companies when, when, when they weren't even called startups. Um, I think one of the biggest difference which I felt in the engineering excellence was that um, you know, as the as the team size and the stakeholders in the mix grow, uh, over communicating and learning um, how to manage stakeholders becomes equally, if not uh, if not more important. Um, for if, right right from the engineering, right from the engineers to the engineering lead to the engineering manager, um, you could get by in a smaller team by not. Uh, not knowing how to manage stakeholders because you are working largely with one stakeholder or two stakeholder, it becomes um, imperative that you are you have to work with with multiple stakeholders in a larger company. You would end up building transparency uh, via scalable processes in a larger company, um, as against in a smaller company where transparency comes by default uh, because you would either be bouncing around ideas on a slack or teams or you know or in person when when we used to work in in person in offices um and uh, yeah i think in smaller companies um you know there's there's a lot more room to uh, 
to the openness for for dissent um what i have observed as compared to the larger companies where you know um being uh, being stakeholder driven also leads to the fact that uh, you have to be a little more consensus driven so I, i think in my mind these are the three larger um, you know differences which is um, you know being uh, you know learn learning how to work over communicate how to manage stakeholders how do you build transparency using the scalable processes um and uh, you know openness to dissent fantastic cheers amke and over to you, over to you lovey sure so it's a it's an interesting question i think um some of the other questions kind of feed into this right so you you've got um <clears throat> you've got the definition of parameters and and kind of the hiring process is there i think that um in much smaller companies and much smaller teams you you can almost get away with uh discussing culture and defining culture um as a group and kind of you know everyone in the same room you just chat oh, what what's important to us and kind of everybody's on the same page and feeling that 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 sort of um uh that uh, that connection with with the the vision and and all of those sort of core values that you can attribute to to having the the excellence uh culture now when businesses scale and obviously where you have larger organizations you can't and you guess to a certain point you can't just have everybody in a room maybe you could have everybody on a on a on a virtual call uh, perhaps but it it becomes slightly more difficult to just uh, manage uh that culture and also when you have more people you you have a kind of uh, a range of different opinions and that kind of feeds again into uh the whole hiring uh, part of that right so so really you're sort of you're saying that that, that we can come on to it later on obviously but the, the you know you're hiring into a certain culture and you're you're hoping that 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 fits but so even when you've got more people there's more chance that there are people that don't uh kind of uh, feel the same way or, or don't don't realize that things are certain um that that company has that culture so um communication becomes very important um and i think as you mentioned earlier anka also um having those scalable processes in there and having things like for example um supporting documentation so building a kind of accessible digital library of 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 content that people can review and look up and and analyze um you, this sort of information can be used um in onboarding for example as part of regular one-on-ones and kind of uh performance reviews and and just making sure that um the that everybody's on the same page and and that's where consistency comes in as well i think that um for those uh, performance reviews and for those one-on-ones and and for maintaining a culture and and, and having that propagate through the organization uh you kind of want to make sure that the the, the not just individuals but the managers are, are kind of crucial to scaling that culture right so um not only can the employees model the behaviors of their managers but they also kind of look to the managers for approval and direction so um yeah it's kind of i i guess the one of the the biggest things is i mean you can there's no reason why you can't employ um certain practices and principles and and processes in smaller organizations i guess it just comes to a point of um they're certainly important but they become far more important as the company grows especially when you you reach a certain certain scale 
Thank you, Levy. And over to you, Roberto. Um, so I was uh, really inspired by both Anka and Louis Sensor, and uh, uh, I actually was thinking that um, from my personal point of view, uh, stating the fact that I share both opinion and uh, how could I see anything different, I was thinking that personally, uh, the, the first thing I should say in a small company, my experience, is that we can't separate those who achieve product market fit and those who are not yet there. And then there's the big companies. And so for the big companies, we say, we, we define a big company, something that got a business model, you, you have the cash flow, you, you can invest. So it's something uh, larger. So from small companies before product market fit, um, uh, it's definitely, as a manager, you can't really ditch anything you learned independently where you learn, you still have to maintain, uh, let's say, the ceremonies to run the tech. It doesn't matter if it's two of them, it's 10, but the small company can still be a small company if there's no product market fit. So excellence, it's a lot about how you do execute those ceremonies. So let's say, uh, maybe you can't really afford to write down a scorecard and, uh, and be data-driven at that point, but uh, still, you, you, you know what you should discuss, you know what's wrong, and maybe you have to not just have one single meeting where you officially debate about that, but maybe you do it uh, once you grab a coffee, uh, while you eat, that's how uh, uh, in that pre-PMF pre kind of company, because at the same time, you have to influence engineers. Engineers. Uh, what happens, any engineer out there dreams to build cool things, well done things, and they spend years, like their life, their lifetime is a unique profession. And you invest so much emotions into that, that you want to be the first one to excel. So in pre-product market fit, I believe it's a lot about the mindset and the execution and uh, trying to, to let your engineers understand. It's a lot about trying to understand what kind of boat are we building. It's not about perfection. Let's just build it. And um, probably we're going to be wrong. And so let's build it so that we can rebuild as fast as we can. Post-product market fit, then you become a little bit more like a coach. You don't really have that many managers managing the tech company. And you can't really be good at that point if the product, there's one, I think uh, uh, 20 years prior, product and tech, there was only the CTO and the product was there. Now you have CPO, CTO, and sometimes the things collide, but when you are you have product market fit if you want to execute on the excellence the product should be closed they are really tight there's nothing like engineering and product product it's one thing and one thing only and that what what happens and you should start in a small company but you are the first coach big companies you need to hire a coach you need to be influent as much more like politics so that's very different the engineers are the same though. So 
Uh, at the same time, you need to give them time to excel, to perfect the machine. You have a big cash, cash flow. Uh, so maybe you should break things a little bit less at that point. That's my point of view. But uh, maybe uh, it's your turn, Alex. I'm really curious as you are the one that came up yeah. with the question. Yeah, great, great answers, everyone. And yeah, quite rightly, it's a fantastic question from Alex. So what about yourself, Alex? What 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 you what do you think about the, the differences between small and larger companies? Yeah, um, real good answers all around there. Um, and uh, like Roberto, what, what you were saying about, you know, the pre product market fit phase, I mean, that's generally what a small tech company will be in, you know, that stage where you're kind of still finding your feet, still trying to work things out and everything. And you may be establishing those processes, you know, getting those rules, standards, all those kinds of things in place. But, you know, when you're small enough and you're still finding your place in the world, those rules are kind of they're broken. You know, it's like that kind of those compromises you make, that technical debt that you incur, that kind of stuff that you wouldn't dream of doing when you're in a later stage and you've got a lot more people around you know, when the process is there for a reason to keep everyone on the same page to, you know, get everyone working together efficiently. When there's like two or three of you maybe in the team, something like that, you know, it's kind of, you do what needs to happen in order to get your stuff done, right? You need to find that product market fit. So that's the important thing, getting that product out. You know, it's not, at that stage, I would say a lot of the code is probably going to be rewritten that you're writing, you know, it's going to, you know, the standards are good, standards help us all, things like that. but there's a difference between the importance of standards when you've got a large team or maybe distributed teams, things like that. Teams where one team might take over another team's code. And, you know, it's very important that they don't come in and start to cry when they see it, you know, where it's like <laughs> when you're in that early stage and you're just all about getting that product out, it's all about finding your place in the market. Mm. You know, it's the, I don't want to sound like a, a renegade or anything like that, but you know how it is, you know the compromises you've got to make. And I think those are the most important things uh, at that kind of stage. The uh, well-considered trade-offs is a... <laughs> yeah, very diplomatic way of putting it, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> well, back once again to the renegade master for Alex there. <laughs> uh, I believe you've got a question for everyone on Kurt. Yeah, so, you know, uh, what my experience has taught me is that um, um, every time uh, we have, um, you know, an in, in engineering team usually ends up suffering a lot when they do not have a momentum. Uh, and momentum doesn't necessarily mean speed, but essentially it means, in my mind, it means, you know, a cadence to keep on delivering, keep on executing. Um, but it's a double-edged sword, right? They keep on delivering, they keep on executing, but how do we make sure that they don't burn out um, either by the virtue of, you know, what commercial teams are asking them of or what product teams are asking them of, or, um, you, know, you know, just by the virtue of, you know, how do we make this as a marathon and not, a, not just a sprint? This is what I've always struggled with. I've, I've tinkered with, few experiments, but not really nailed something down. I wanted to pick your brain on this. Yeah, fantastic question, especially with everything going on over the last two years. Would you like to start this one, Louis? Definitely. Uh, I have personal experience with burnout. Um, 
so it was during the the, the, the the first lockdown that we had i just started actually at lawbite and um yeah and we had, we'd set some pretty lofty deadlines to yeah. replace the website and to, to get things moving in a particular direction and um we were struggling to get the development resource that we needed in for that so i personally was um was working long long hours and uh, con- uh sort of continuously and uh i it's interesting because um having led teams of engineers i have been uh acutely aware of watching for those early signs of burnout right but um uh unable to holistically look at those within myself <laughs> so you kind of uh, i guess it feeds into the fact that the, the things to do i mean first of all working from home doesn't really help there's kind of that um i've noticed not just personally but with other people that um when you're working from home it's it's kind of a lot more intense so there's uh you, you've got that real focus and you've kind of got that um uh that, that prolonged periods of of attention on the screen and, and and you're still on the screen because in order to communicate with other people you're kind of on the screen still right so you're, you're not just tapping someone on the shoulder and saying let's go and grab a coffee and have a chat and uh, yeah and getting away from that you're you're still there um so so that doesn't really help and it's kind of um the there are the the, the 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 thing to do is to kind of keep an eye on things right and to keep your finger on the pulse and watch for those early signs of burnout so things like, like reduced efficiency and energy lowered levels of motivation uh increased error rates uh, irritability increased frustration in the teams and um and act on those as quickly as possible um and you should be uh, as a as a leader as a manager and kind of just even as a, a concerned fellow employee i guess it's kind of you, you want to be looking for those and trying to make sure that um during your frequent communication with each other that uh that people can act on those as soon as possible and i think that um one of the the most important things really is is rest and i think that actually it's very important that people get the right amount of rest and that people are kind of uh, you will be far less efficient if you uh, if you work do three 12 hour days than if you split that 36 hours up into a slightly longer week you know or even a few more days because you are resting and you're recovering and you're kind of you're doing better work uh, better quality work you know working smarter not harder uh, as they say so and i think that Sustaining productivity and focus requires giving your mind plenty of opportunity to rest and recharge, right? So you can come back stronger and more efficient. And um, and I think that aside from rest, the stuff that you can do to keep that momentum up, right? So I think that um, giving purpose and meaning to to the work that people are working on, right? So I, I find that if I'm um, if I'm if I'm really um, in, engaged and fulfilling work that, and I, I'm, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing, I have that motivation to just push more and more and I get that energy and I'm like, yeah, I really want to carry on. I really want to drive myself forward and get this product delivered. And, 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 and I feel that that feeds into that. Um, and I, I think that burnout happens a lot quicker when you're, you're doing unfulfilled work. Um, mixing things up as well so i also have noticed over the last few years that uh having a single developer on a project for a prolonged period of time is not great for burnout um sort of having more developers on that splitting that up into phases 
which is not only good for continuous integration and delivery, but also good for keeping motivation and, and, and reducing burnout because you're shipping things in, in smaller iterative chunks and people can kind of see uh, the fruits of their labor um, a lot more uh, frequently, which is good. Uh, and other things like uh, keeping, uh, maintaining a good culture, right? So working with people that you enjoy working with um, and, and building cool products as a team um, is also is also quite good for, for morale and for motivation as well. And, and people are kind of feeling that they're part of a team that is really pushing and driving forwards. Um, and, and, and that kind of does slow things down. But ultimately, you can, with all the will in the world, you, you sort of, you can have the best team and the best platform and the best software. But, but at the end of the day, there needs to be a well-structured um, software delivery, sorry, <coughs> software delivery uh sort of project pipeline where people are able to rest and recover in order to do the, the best work that they can. Thanks, Louis. Over to you, Roberto. So uh, uh, I definitely share what, what you were saying. And um, the only thing that I believe is worth for me mentioning uh, it's something that I learned in my previous company. Uh, so I own a company that builds uh, steering wheels for simulation, and that's an hardware company. And prior to that, it never happened to me because I could not really ask to any business partner, I need to do that. So for the first time, I was able to, to mention my will to join sales calls, business calls, and at that point, uh, like I started to see why the burning out, it was a constant. In the, in the last 20 years, it's something we, all of us cares about, but it keeps happening. And uh, at the same time, in the last 10 years, maybe 15 years, the agile movement, that is something we know it works. We're saying agile should start from the top. It's not something that stays in the tech and the product. And uh, so when I started to uh, even asking companies like you uh, have as well, uh, I was asking and begging them, can I join the sales calls? They are so open-minded and they were like, cool, I think we, we can benefit from that. And uh, so I believe we can balance and we can obtain the marathon effect Anchor was mentioning, uh, if we understand, or better, we help the business understand that the product roadmap that is actually that starts from the business and from the sales, because everybody knows sales try to sell even what it doesn't exist. And uh, it just came up during a meeting call. <laughs> you come, they come up with an idea and they say it's already done. Then yeah. uh, the, the, the founders are convinced they should do it. They come to the CTO and our CPO, we should do this beautiful thing. And so the product roadmap is defined. In two months, we want that. And that's the moment where the marathon should be discussed because you need to balance the roadmap. The product roadmap is what dictates the burnout in the company. The sales do burnout because of that. Founders are really stressed out because they set the wrong expectations. 
the product wants something. The engine engineers wants to build cool engineering as well. So um, in my experience, you can obtain that only if basically you negotiate on the product roadmap so that as Lewis was mentioning, you always reiterate re in small chunks so that you build quite fast, you deliver, you fix. And in the product roadmap, you have to discuss those momentum. Um, that's my that's my only contribute to to this topic, to be honest. Okay, it's still a bit so yeah. Over to you, Alex. So yeah, <coughs> so yeah, I fully endorse the answers given by uh, Louis and Roberto so far. Um, yeah, because I mean, this is it's one of those really important things in our industry, really, isn't it? Um, and of course, you know, because you know, like I was saying before about small companies where you know, it's all about speed and you know, finding your place in the world. But then once you get to a certain point and you kind of have, you're kind of still trying to go at that pace. But of course, you end up doing that. You're building features on top of features on top of features on top of a core system that maybe hasn't really had any uh, attention paid to the standards, the core, that technical debt that you incurred at the start, which you were right to do, but of course, when the time comes to pay it back, you've got to make sure you pay it back. This is something that can often be challenging when it comes to trying to communicate with the non-technical people who are using the system, of course, from the outside. They're using it in the same way the customers would use it. And when you use a word like refactoring to them, they, you know, they don't know what it means off the top of their head. Um, I mean, uh, a lot of time I've had non-technical people going, oh, can you just refactor that feature into this other feature? And I'm like, no, no, that, that is not what refactoring means. Refactor something you won't know about. Everyone else is going to really understand what this is. So it's getting that kind of balance, you know, when you're talking about migrating from one set of infrastructure to another, again, and the non-technical people might be going, well, uh, what's the benefit of this? And you go, well, you won't see any. But what will be important is that the team won't be tearing their hair out with this kind of stuff. They won't be having to really battle, you know, put in all of this extra time just to get out these features because they've got the, the right ecosystem working for them now. They've got the right infrastructure to put it on. They won't be having to, you know, try and deploy something and then find it doesn't work in the way they expected because we're still using the same infrastructure we used at the start. And these are the kind of things that those kind of frustrations when you're just trying to get something so sometimes, you know, trying to get something done that's fairly simple and you're prevented from doing it by the fact that you simply haven't been allowed to do the necessary refactoring, do the necessary re-architecting. So this is where it becomes the leader's job to be able to make sure that everyone else does understand these things, that they understand what the benefit is. You know, it's not just a case of we did this and you will never have any idea what it is. You need to craft that story to communicate why this is important and why refactoring is actually a really exciting thing to have happened. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of avoiding burnout, you know, just making sure that people aren't held back by the things that they really shouldn't be being held back by. Fantastic. Great answers, everyone. And how about you, Ankur? How do you continue to keep delivering momentum, momentum without burning out the teams? So, first of all, thank you so much for these answers. They were like really profound. Um, I'm going to take a lot of these um, specific um, initiatives back and going to implement them because to me, they were like um, 
to me it's it's extremely sacred at times we kind of forget that we are working with people um we are working with human beings and not not with resources uh it, it kind of you know like um you know um like louis said uh, we tend to end up forgetting at times uh, we end up burning ourselves and we only realize later on that uh, uh, we don't end up seeing those burnout um you know uh, factors amongst ourselves um i i think couple of things which um, which also um, you know alludes to what alex said um one thing which i have uh, instituted as as a culture is um, is that we we run uh, we make sure that you know every month we kind of try to run at least one dark sprint so to proactively pay off some technical debt um so that we do not uh, live with it um second thing is that um, you know i consciously force people to take off um we have an unlimited leave policy but i consciously force people to take off especially with the unlimited leave policy people tend to uh, forget to take leave uh, so you have to force them and you have to say hey you know what you got to go to go on leave um, i keep a very close eye on how much people are taking off and if they do not take off um you know at least once in 3 months i make sure that they are taking at least once a week or uh, sorry at least a week or a two week off um and and for that i need to preempt and consciously create a kind of a redundancy mechanism kind of a dependency mechanism for them uh, but those are the two things which i have consciously done uh, to make sure that you know people are taking enough rest uh and uh, they are wired to take rest uh, they are wired to take off yeah as an interesting psychological phenomenon isn't it if you yeah. give somebody 20 days holiday they will say right i need to use these 20 days holiday or i will lose them or something will happen to them yeah. but if you give somebody unlimited holiday they don't yeah. think about using the holiday because they have unlimited holidays <laughs> <laughs> and the year ends <laughs> <laughs> yeah but look is unlimited so <laughs> yeah, fascinating yeah yeah can you send me that policy anchor I might might put that to our ceo actually um <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah so you know great answers to that particular question very pertinent topic um I understand you have a question Louis I do have a question uh I have a question that is topical right now um i am myself trying to hire into a, uh, an excellent engineering culture so my question to the to the group is uh, how how do you hire into an excellent engineering culture cool so i'm going to be the first if you guys don't mind um this is something i'm trying for in eo hubs uh that's the first time the teams uh the founders team actually agrees so um i will tell you if this was working or not um we're trying to um, so we we always look for talents and uh, excellence but so I, i'm trying to make a shift a little shift at least in the mindset let's hire to retain talents and retain excellence and so the question was suddenly i had a suddenly a different answer 
because if you just want a talent, there's a lot of way to achieve it. It's super hard. But if you want to retain a talent, that's even harder. So that's, there's a, uh, there was a lot of um, psychological debates about how to retain hiring, to, re to retain talents. And so it was a lot, first thing to us is understanding um, if the individual is someone, there's no right or wrong, Let, let's say that, but for sure there's some individuals who are and um, in their life path, they're looking for a career change. They want to climb the ladder. And then there's the individual that uh, is more about, I want to build things. I want to be really close. I want to be an action man. And that's two very different profiles. So it depends by your needs. On top of that, uh, and then I, I, I will conclude how you do it, how do you find talents personally? But please, guys, let's not pick the same forums. I aim at forums. So do I need Node.js? I just go there and I put manifest there. Or let's try we, we sponsor events. Or even easier, you just uh, join events and you and probably the people who are genuinely inter interested, they they will be there. Uh, there's a, that saying: if you uh, if you stay long enough around the barbershop, you you will get a free haircut sooner or later, right? So that's how uh, I execute at the moment. But it's um, I'm still in the journey. So let's finger cross and let's see how how it works. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Roberto, what you're saying there about, you know, you, you don't just hire for the sake of hiring, right? Like, you, you hire for retention, as you're saying. Um, like, even taking it one step further, I mean, I would say in terms of, you know, what's your, your strategy for hiring? I mean, if I had to sum it up, I'd say very, very carefully, um, you know, particularly when you're at an early stage, um, you know, because, of course, all the people you bring in are going to have such an impact on your business, your culture, whatever team that they go into. Um, you know, when you hire someone who is just great on paper, you know, that they have all the skills, but maybe they don't have the values or something like that, you know, you, that's always going to have a huge impact. And of course, when you fail to hire for retention, when someone leaves quite early on, maybe even before the end of their probation period or something, of course, that's, you know, that's an unpleasant uh, thing to happen. You know, it's not nice when people have been, you know, taking their time, you know, uh, getting used to working with somebody and then they're gone and suddenly you have to go through the hiring process again. Now that in itself is unpleasant. But of course, what's much worse than that is when it doesn't work out from the other way and you have to let someone go before the end of their probation period. I mean, or even maybe after that, you know, someone is, you know, doing so badly that you actually have to let them go. I mean, it, this is traumatic when this happens. You know, it's like not just for the team that they're directly in, but, you know, for the wider business as well. This is why, I mean, you know, if I have to sum it up in one word, you know, or a few words, very, very carefully, you know, making sure it's not just about the skills, it's about the values, it's about how well they fit in your team, what they bring to it and everything like that, making sure that they're going, this is someone who's going to thrive here and, you know, not going to get itchy feet very early on. You know, of course, this is kind of, this is more the how, uh, I'm talking about how are you not hiring, but I think these are really important things.
And uh, Alex, I was thinking that's actually a very good point because at the same time, uh, as a leader, as a, a anybody got a limited budget, so you can't really fail too many times. You run out of cash at some point because hiring someone and not someone randomly, it's really expensive. Yeah, for work too. these damn recruiters, eh? Yeah. I've got an excellent track record. But then he said that. So. But still, it's one of the most important things. You really can't fail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So huge, huge proponent of what Alex just said, right? Um, I, um, I think this is like one of one of the first tenets of um, the way of working which I had listed when I joined Perkbox, which was we build frugal teams. Uh, and it kind of broke a lot of people's brain um, because uh, conventionally we were not used to building frugal teams uh, in engineering. Um, and it consciously uh, forces you to hire fewer people um, and better people. Uh, in my view, um, the the way you do it is uh, you look for culture ad rather than culture fit. Uh, you know, because in my mind, when you look for culture fit, you kind of um, uh, look for confirmation biases. You you kind of reinforce your your confirmation biases. Um, so I I look for people who are who are extremely opinionated, but who are respectful while disagreeing. Um, it's difficult to find those kind of people, but when you find them, uh, you know, uh, when I when I was a product manager, I built my best products with with the engineers who were extremely extremely opinionated, who would push back on every single time I would come back to them without a without a data point, um, and that's the kind of engineers I would like in my team who would push back to their product managers, to their designers, to their stakeholders, even if it is a CEO. Um, I would look uh, if they are team team people, um, if they know how to work in a team. Um, it's often at times it uh, can be gamed. So that's that's a thing which uh, which uh, is a little difficult during the interview process. Uh, you know, usually reference check helps or what do they at times they slip up when you ask them, you know, what do you think about your previous team? What do you think about your previous company? Uh, but I, I think the the core tenet, like Alex uh, very beautifully put it, is, is to hire fewer people, uh, hire better people and uh, in my mind, you know, the the stronger opinion they would have, uh, the better they would try to back it up. Yeah. Brilliant. And what about yourself, Louis? What is your strategy for hiring into <coughs> engineering excellence? Well, aside from using fantastic recruiters like yourself, uh, <laughs> we uh, we we <laughs> I think that that some really really positive things there, and I've actually written written some almost all of them down because uh, they were kind of different to the to the things that I I've got down on my uh, on my notes uh, so the for, for me as the thing that we all share 
in common here with our answers is that it's very, very important, the hiring process, uh, especially when you're looking at culture and you're, um, you're, you're, you're bringing people into that culture. Um, now, because personalities spread through the team, so and the, the, the opinions and the thoughts of those personalities will propagate through your team, whether they are positive or negative. Yeah. So having one bad egg in the team doesn't necessarily just mean that it's one bad egg. It could That could propagate through the team. And before you know it, you've got three or four people that are thinking negatively of the situation. Um, so I think that... Uh, so personality is, is just super important. Aside from the, the standard... Um, technical assessments, which were part and parcel of the hiring process for so many years. I think that employers are really waking up now to what used to be deemed soft skills, as people used to call them. And now it's actually it's a very important uh, part of hiring, uh, it, almost more important from my perspective than just the strict technical assessment. So, for example, um, I mean, I would actually rather hire a slightly less experienced developer that had a passion and a desire to learn than a more experienced uh, entitled developer that kind of was set in his ways uh, and thought that he knew everything. Um, and I guess part of what we do here at Lawbyte is that we have a, um, a sort of um, some psychometric uh, evaluation as part of our hiring process. So um, what we do is we kind of, uh, we have a... a sort of personality discussions so we, we we see if there are uh, matches on values and i really like the idea that actually culture add over culture fit which is a which is a really interesting thing as you mentioned earlier um and we discuss the kind of working styles uh the ambitions the the the, the personal vision and, and kind of the desires to work in, a, in an organization that had similar visions and 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 work styles for example and then we we discussed kind of situational judgment as well so for example there was a few years ago i was in a position where i thought i'd hired this fantastic developer we did a all of the technical assessments and uh, we chatted to them for as long as you would think that you could chat to somebody to get an idea about them right because you're talking to somebody for maybe a couple of hours tops if you're lucky um and then um depending on the seniority of the role, you might actually talk to a less experienced developer for maybe only an hour before you do the sort of technical assessments. But we kind of thought, yep, yeah, great stuff. And um, uh, the real marker of somebody's personality, right, is what they're like under pressure. So uh, everybody can be really nice and happy and great when everything's going well. But kind of, uh, I've seen this many times in my career that actually when things go awry, that's when people's personalities come out. And that is actually where we experienced some of the issues that we had. And we had to kind of deal with the conflict resolution, which I'm sure is a topic we could all talk about uh, another time. But um, so <clears throat> things like that, situational judgment, kind of uh, we do a little case study exercise as well. And kind of uh, we, we sort of factor that in as part of our hiring process. And, and, and since we've been doing that, actually, uh, it's been great. It's kind of reaped the rewards and it's actually um, it's highlighted some some people that we thought would have been a great fit actually probably wouldn't have been a good fit. So um, that would be the only thing I'd add from uh, from what the other guys have said. 
Brilliant, great question and answers everyone. Certainly close to my heart, especially in my profession. And uh, in particular, th thanks for your input there, Louis. <laughs> um, <laughs> so last but not certainly, certainly not least, over to you, Roberto, with your question. Right, so um, my question is, what are the parameters to measure and define an excellent engineering culture? Yeah, I mean, I, I think with this one, I mean, it's it's quite funny, really, because the last, um, well, I was going to say a couple of years, but I guess the last uh, few decades, really, um, we've gained a lot more parameters in the software development world to you know, measure things, you know, things like, you know, story points and OKRs and all these different metrics that can be used to measure things. But, I mean, do, do they actually really measure, I mean, they don't really measure culture, right, do they? And it's like, do they measure engineering excellence? It's like, could you say that engineering excellence was related to a uh, number of bug tickets or something like that, or how OKRs are delivered on, or you know, even just like number of tickets done, things like that. These kind of things are a bit more abstract and a bit more uh, non-uniform. I mean, I don't know. I've, I've seen companies that I've worked for in the past try and use metrics like this to define like just how well a team was doing overall which i never really thought actually worked simply because you know the teams were working on different things they've all you know they're, if they're working on different systems it's not a level playing field because you know some of them will have inherited legacy systems some of them will be working on greenfield some of them will write tickets in a different way they'll break them down smaller so you start you know using these not one size fits all solutions and it just kind of I'm interested to hear what everyone else has to say on this because I always thought they just didn't work, whereas I was kind of uh, arguing against people who were quite insistent on using them. I think really when you want to talk about the parameters for measuring engineering excellence, I mean, you kind of have to look at the human factor a lot more than just metrics and things like that. I mean, how long do people stay at the organization? I think is a good one. If you've, if you've got really high turnover with your engineers, then, well, there's something wrong. You know, it's, uh, you know, if it's, that uh, the work is not challenging or something like that, or that the team is not right, well, there's probably going to be something in there that you can fix. Whereas if it's, you know, if people are staying for years and years, then you probably have a good culture there. Either that or you're just paying way over market rates. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, let's let's define what culture is, right? If, if you... Um, look at the usual definition of a culture, right? It's it's basically a set of ideas, customs, um, which a tribe or, uh, or a particular set of people in the society follow, right? Uh, from that perspective, uh, in my mind, most of the parameters and excellent engineering culture are, are more qualitative rather than quantitative. Um, for instance, um, a great engineering culture needs to have needs to be really great at execution. What does that mean? That means um, there needs to be a strong emphasis on uh, momentum in delivery. That should be sacred to them. Uh, they should be aligned with the organizational OKRs, and uh, there should be a clear visibility for them in the strategy. Uh, how do they function as a team together? Uh, do they understand uh, what does it mean to work together as a team? Or, or when they come together as a team, 
the kind of um, bicker, um, you know, become a little more dysfunctional, do not trust each other, um, rather talk, um, you know, things about each other behind their back as against solving problems in front of each other. Um, is there a culture of respectful dissent, right? Um, are mistakes acceptable in the team? Um, you know, when, when do, can they, can they make mistakes, raise their hand and say, hey, you know what, this is a mistake done by me and I'll do better next time. Or will they be scared if they will make a mistake? To me, those um, are, are the, the great parameters to measure um, or not exactly measure, but define an excellent engineering culture because uh, you know they're kind of in my mind culture is like a, like a set of um, rules for a tribe that's that's how i think about it rather than um, you know quantifying it yeah thank you yeah so i completely agree with with with, with both of those i think that um in in terms of uh, measuring culture as a thing uh, I guess it's kind of I completely agree and that um, it's slightly intangible and actually it's uh, it can be hard to measure quantitatively so I guess the it, measuring it would come after defining it I believe so so taking us back to the definition of that so I get the 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 thing I believe would be to define what's important to you as a company, right? So, um, and that requires thinking. So, and and I think that um, uh, not just to copy, for example, the the Spotify or Netflix models. Although that being said, uh, the uh, the Spotify health check model for squads is actually quite good. I don't know if anyone's actually yeah. seen that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. And it's kind of, we do a, a slightly similar thing. And, and what they do for, for people that don't know what that is, is they, they kind of define the areas or the values or the, the, the sort of yeah, things that they, they want to um, measure against a squad, for example. And I, I think this follows, uh, sorry, this falls back to the, 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 the differences or similarities between smaller or larger organizations. Well, the you could attribute these values or, or areas or things that you wanted to on a squad level for, for, for larger organizations, but you could actually dial that down to the individual engineers if you're for a smaller organization. And then they kind of uh, put examples of what is good or poor, uh, or I think they call them awesome or crappy. <laughs> and, uh, and then you, you speak to people and you find out actually how are they feeling about these things? Do they believe that the the squads or the, the individual contributors are actually, um, what's the color for this, green, amber, or red, right? And then you look at that across the board and you say, well, we've got quite a lot of reds in here. <laughs> um, I mean, that, 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 that could be one way of doing it. Um, and I think that another way of, of, of measuring that really, uh, which has a slight similarity, is kind of looking at, how you measure the output of the culture so the byproduct of that culture for example looking and having the clear observable trackable behaviors as a result of the culture so um you know uh 
and having good conversations with people to find out uh, and to see um, how those behaviours are actually manifesting through the team and, 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 and how they actually have been the result of having a good culture. So I think that would be my add to that. Fantastic. And um, yeah, some great answers from everyone there. Um, and back to yourself, Roberto, what are the parameters to measure and define an excellent engineering culture for who hopes? Um, I think a lot comes to a single word that Anker was using, that's a tribe. And so basically, if you want to build something like a tribe that, but let's be honest, it's a tribe of professionals. Uh, I'm from I stand from the point of view that I believe everybody should have his own life, his own passions. So let's be honest, it's not about building a family. Everybody should have their own family. But it's a tribe of professionals that should achieve a goal and fulfill their own uh, dreams and potentials. So um, how you do it? What I believe is uh, still all about retaining. It's all about retention. and. Uh, my parameters, I was thinking about my own um, question because the reason why I'm, I was asking is actually because it's something that it, it didn't come easy or natural to me uh, to actually measure and define. So uh, my exercise was, um, let's use the, the four most common words over soul words, I, I would say impact, teamwork, quality and execution. There's a roughly, I think, one million books out there saying, oh, you need to make sure they they need to, they want to make an impact, but to be honest, what the hell that means? Uh, so I would say impact, there's something that I've observed and it looks like, and I'm talking about engineering culture. So impact for me is how many chances do the engineers engineers in in general in your team how many chances do they have to join meetings about business and sales can they be free to express upfront what they think because at the same time in the company they are saying that these people these individuals are the smartest in the company on on the other side they are saying you can't really understand these kind of things and the product let's just build it i i believe that's when you let people making an impact and that's when they learn and uh that's uh, i think when, when you have a chance to retain teamwork same thing as about bringing together people with very different roles uh so it's about measuring how many meetings do we have where we have serious all ends, not the kind of all ends all together. What did you do, Anker? How was your day, Lewis? How do you feel, Alex? No, and more something like let's talk together, like with the leaders, sales, product, commercial, whatever, all together is about that. Very different stakeholders. Um, for some reason, when it comes to tech, you are isolated. And uh, you get on your desk as a studio a bunch of things, and then you have just to pass that that papers around, and they have to execute. So it's very tricky uh, to 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 then excel. Quality uh, is something maybe I would say it's 
all about how many incidents you have once you build things. You you, you need the, you really need to care, take care about that, uh, rather than uh, taking a look at repos. To be honest, it's not something personally I do. I, I love to onboard, so the very few uh days but then it's a lot about the managers and so a big signal a red flex is uh if there's a uh, people uh, there's things falling apart and then if you were hiring right the the code quality will come um even because we are at the same time all coaches and uh, execution is the last thing and uh it's about for sure, how many deliverables we achieve, but it's a, a lot about can we experiment? Can we run experiment? Can and in, can someone even propose a new experiment? Do we have that chance? Uh, and um, if you have quality in the product and in, in the tech part, you win sales as well. So that's a big measure for yourself as a leader. What's the truth? Basically, it tells you what's the measure, how people out there measure the quality. There's a two kind of qualities, let's say, and the, uh, the one that you feel because you're part of the organization and the one that is perceived outside. And that's why I always refer to sales and uh, how it goes what people are seeing out there um, and um, that that that's that's it basically from uh, my point of view brilliant great final answer roberto does does anyone have any final points they want to add to the topics we've discussed so far the only thing to add was uh alex's comment earlier about um not being able to use okrs and, and sprint points and stuff like that to, to to measure that i completely agree with you i made a note of that and i never brought it up um it, because measuring the performance of people is is a little bit more challenging uh, because not all engineers are the same and I noticed this um, so you can have a team of engineers that are working very well together um, and you can have ticket munchers right that are just smashing through the features and their, their velocity is arbitrarily 58 uh, and, and then you've got uh, other engineers who are uh, whose velocity might be 22 or 20 and you think oh they're not performing the same as the other engineers and you think okay but they are they are actually performing a vital supporting role whereby they might be doing certain things within that project and within that team that enables that team to be a high performing team um, so you know they might be a, a proliferant a, a proficient uh, PR reviewer for example or, but they might just not be smashing through the velocity at the same speed and so therefore uh, it makes it more difficult to, to, to use those metrics to measure individuals. Um, that was the, the other point I just uh, wanted to I ask. think, Lewis, uh, that's uh, really important because at the same time, the story points, they don't tell you uh, if what they deliver is actually buggy or not because yeah. it's better to achieve 20 story points instead of 55 if you have to work on it for three weeks. Yeah. I think that's a big point, the one you shared. Yeah, I mean, uh, to, to use them in that way, of course, you know, it's a, it's 
the total corruption of what they were intended for you know it's like they were just intended for yeah predictability and things like that but of course yeah. when sometimes when people see this way of quantifying something they go well let's just quantify it in that way <laughs> yeah that's not the thing that you're really supposed to be quantifying with that yeah Oh, absolutely fantastic guys and um you know, we, we, it sounds like we could go on all day but um we, we, we're tight for time um but yeah it's been an absolute pleasure being on with, with with each of you today um so we'll, we'll leave it there for now we've discussed the difference in engineering excellent cultures in small and large companies the parameters used to measure engineering excellence strategies to consider continue delivering whilst not allowing your team to burn out and the challenges around interviewing into an excellent engineering culture um yeah so it's as i said it's been an absolute pleasure with you guys so far this has been the evolution exchange podcast i'd like to take this opportunity to thanks alex and kerr louis and roberto for providing their insights into the topic and thank you for listening if you'd like to get involved in any of our future podcasts, reach out to me on LinkedIn or email at michael.sullivan at evolution-contract.co.uk.